All right, hello everyone and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. This is our first ever live recording of a podcast episode and we're super thrilled to have some key thought leaders from all around the world joining us today to talk about Eradicate, the Ceftibipril and Staph aureus bacteremia trial. First, I have to introduce our honored guests. We have Associate Professor Tom Holland, who is a professor at Duke. He's the lead Staph aureus researcher and the first author on this clinical trial. And then we're also thrilled to be joined by Dr. Vance Fowler, who is also a professor of medicine at Duke, another lead staph aureus researcher. I'm sure you're very familiar with both of their work and the senior author on the trial that we'll discuss today. So Tom, Vance, thank you so much for joining us. And then I want to introduce to you guys my co-host, who is a friend and a guest of Breakpoints several times now. So Dr. Steve Tong, who is a physician in Melbourne, Australia, a dear friend, a phenomenal researcher. Steve also brings the perspective of us today as the lead trial designist for the SNAP trial, which is Staphylococcus aureus network adaptive platform trial, which is currently being run all around the world. And he has a bit of a connection, I think, to Dr. Fowler and Dr. Holland in that he did a postdoc at Duke, which Steve, I learned that today when I was Googling you, trying to write another bio for you. So that's neat. So Steve has spent some time at Duke in North Carolina, lovely, lovely part of the country. And you guys probably didn't know this. I'm going to embarrass Steve. He actually discovered and named two different species of staph, which is just fascinating. So Steve, I'm gonna need you to tell us what those species are, because they just said two species and it was kind of vague. And then if you wanna lead us off with our discussion here today. Sure, very happy to. Thanks, Erin. Let me introduce you as well before I launch into that. Um, so most of you will already know Erin is part of Breakpoints, who's a, an infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and she's the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation there, and a Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And Erin's been out to Australia as well, so I uh, have had chances to meet in person and uh, enjoy her company. Um, so yes, I, I spent six months, I think, at, at Duke with um, Vance and Tom uh, back in 2011, I think. So it's been a very long-term um, partnership with with both Vance and Tom. It's been my privilege to become not just colleagues but friends with them during that time. And Staphylococcus argentius, the silver staph, and Staphylococcus schweitzeri, which is mainly found in monkeys in Africa, actually, are the two species that we got to formally name. And again, that's back about 10 years ago now. So that's been some somewhat in the distance, distant past, and now moving on to clinical trials. That is very um, cool, so and I can't believe that is never come up in all the times I've spoken with you about staph. So anyway, congratulations. <laughs> Let's dive in today to staph aureus. Okay, now I think we were going to direct this question, perhaps Tom and Vance, about what's the greatest need they see for new drugs for staph aureus bacteremia and really uh, get at why this trial perhaps. So Tom, do you wanna have a go at answering this question? What's the greatest need for new drugs for staph aureus bloodstream infections? Yeah, I think I would keep it fairly simple here and say that Staph aureus bacteremia still has pretty dismal outcomes, right? So with somewhere around 20 or 25% uh, mortality in all comers at, at about 90 days, outcomes are still poor. They're poorer in MRSA than MSSA. So I would say the area of greatest need is an antibiotic that's efficacious against MRSA. Great. And we'll come to, to the actual paper. So ceftibipril for treatment of complicated Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia. Uh, this came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, October 12, 2023. Uh, and really, I think the first 
staphylobacteremia study in the New England since 2006, if I remember correctly, which was the daptomycin registrational trial, which Vance led uh, back then. So that's what, 17 years ago. So this is a big deal for us in infectious diseases. And thanks to Tom and Vance and all the members of their group who've conducted this study because it's really important. Um, and maybe a little bit more background just to, to the journal club idea, Erin. At, at my university and hospital, we invited Tom and Vance to come to our journal club. And what we do in our journal club was we spend a whole hour on one article. So it's not, you know, five articles, quick run through of those. We, we go into depth and that's what we did with Tom and Vance. And we thought it was such a great session that we had here in Melbourne that we should share it with the rest of the world. And, and hence we're here today. You know, we, we often hear podcasts where uh, a journal articles mentioned in, you know, 30 second block, top line results are presented, but we don't get to do the deep dive. And even at a conference presentation, so Tom presented this at, I think it was ECMED or ID Week, and you can only get 15 minutes right, and there's really little discussion or questions. You don't get a chance to hear the story behind the, the paper and the trial. So this is a chance for us to do that, go deep, um, and have the, the key people um, be able to ask, for us to ask the hard questions in, in the trial. I would just say too, we're so thrilled to have you guys. And I, I love this journey because we actually covered this on the podcast a couple of years ago as a late breaker, and then we covered it as a practice changing trial. And then so to have you guys here today and really talk about the details and how we now, you know, what's coming with this drug and the future of staph aureus bacteremia is just really great. So thank you so much for being here. Because this drug has a fascinating history, and I think we're both interested in about like how this drug came to be studied and why the first RCT for Staph aureus bacteremia, and with it looking at a new agent since 2006, what's the deal here? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, and and you have a slide up for the folks who are on the on the on the Journal Club as well. You know, septobiprol is a drug that's been around and been in development for more than 20 years. It was granted FDA fast track status in 2004, so 20 years ago now. And it's had a you know a difficult regulatory path. I think this is this predates mine and Vance's involvement with the drug. But there were skin and pneumonia trials that were completed. And ultimately, it did not achieve approval from the FDA. And these concerns are this is publicly acknowledged or known that it was specifically around concerns around site monitoring in the skin trials. And so not so much about results being one way or the other, but purely around monitoring and. Uh, ultimately, that uh, the antibiotic was not approved in the U.S. Uh, the new drug application was withdrawn in 2011, and I think most people probably thought reasonably that the the compound was scrapped and wasn't going to come back. It was approved in several European countries as well as in Canada for uh, pneumonia specifically, and so it does exist in the world. It's not approved currently in the United States. So, the company that currently owns this drug thought about um, bringing it through a staph aureus bacteremia trial planning for that started about a decade ago and is, is when vance and i got involved uh, and it, there there are a lot of challenges there you know unlike skin trials or uti trials for gram negative rod antibiotics there's not where, where there there is an fda guidance document that says here's how you design a trial here's the populations we want here's the endpoints we want sort of if here, here's a little bit of how you do this there's not an established regulatory path for staph aureus bacteremia so it's a process to go back and forth uh, with the FDA through this special protocol assessment process to say, here's what we're proposing to do. And they say, well, here's what we would like to see. And then there's a back and forth um, that Vance and I were both involved with as we reached uh, sort of an agreement on what this protocol would look like. Um, and there were changes in Vance, but you may want to speak to this. Some things that you had done via a similar process for daptomycin um, earlier were, you know, were no longer things that, that would have been acceptable for this trial. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's one way to say it. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, I, I think one critical piece that will probably come out in the, in the course of this conversation today is that, you know, the registrational trials and strategy trials have fundamentally different audiences and um, really fundamentally different objectives. So in that, you know, both of which are critical, each of which is sort of uh, paralyzed without the other, but both of which are, are really pretty distinct. And in your registrational trials, the primary goal is to demonstrate that the drug you know, is safe and effective. And, um, and that can sometimes, that sounds like it would be something that would be very similar to what would be done in a strategy trial, but it, it's, it's surprising how different they can be. One of the big things that really changed right off the bat <clears throat> between the DAPTO study and the TOM study was what's called the non-inferiority margin. You know, in, in a word, the 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 bar was raised considerably. It got a little, it got a lot, good deal tougher for Tom's trial than it did for mine. Um, there were some others too, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But in the interest of time, I think maybe we'll let uh, let just you guys keep going. All right, thank you for that background. And in the spirit of, I think then trial design, the challenges, and then walking through today. Steve, do you want to guide us through what we refer to as the consort framework, why this is a good framework to think about the trial elements and how we're going to talk through our discussion today? Sure, thanks, Aaron. So one way I like reading the literature is, and these kind of trials is thinking about that consort framework, which is a pre-specified, agreed to, I guess, all, all the elements that, that you should report on when you write up a trial. Uh, so these go through things like what is the actual trial design, who are the participants, what are the interventions, what are the outcomes, and ask very specific questions about each of those things. And so any article that we read involving a randomised clinical trial, we should actually see each of these things reported and reported in an appropriate way. So I find it quite a useful framework to go through to say, hey, look, is this article that, that Tom and Vance have written, have they actually satisfied the requirements for appropriate reporting of a clinical trial? And for those who can't see the screen right now, so those elements that we're gonna walk through today are the trial design, the participants of the study, what interventions were allocated, and then subsequent outcomes, how they calculated sample size, and to, to Vance's point of determining that non-inferiority margin, how that was done, how participants are ultimately randomized, and how the study's implemented, and then what blinding is put into place for ensuring that the trial is done properly. So to talk high level about trial design, and then I wanna hear from the, the experts here. So this was a phase three double blind, double dummy, randomized, non-inferiority trial that was done at 60 sites in 17 countries from August of 2018 through March of 2022. So I guess my first question for you guys right off the bat is, what's it like doing a global trial? I mean, we have participants listening right now from all over the world, same as those who are gonna to listen to the podcast, and many may or may not have been involved in clinical trials, but when you're talking about 60 sites, 17 countries, and, and, and ensuring the integrity of the trial, what's that even like? Where do you even start? How much take that, bud? Yeah, I'll start with this one. Yeah, I mean, trials can be done in different ways, and I think Vance has alluded to this. We do, I mean, we're part of pragmatic trials. Of course, Steve is leading SNAP, which is a, you know, a huge network trial that's going to look really different. There are different ways that trials can look 
for this one, if I pick up from where, you know, Vance and I were involved with um, designing the protocol and figuring out what the sponsor was going to do. And then in this case, the sponsor through a CRO, so through a contract research organization, so a company that helps execute the trial, once there was an agreed protocol, the sponsor and the CRO ran the trial operationally at sites. At that point, I rolled off from direct oversight of day-to-day operations of the trial onto the adjudication committee. We'll, I know we'll come back to that and what that was, but I chaired the adjudication committee that saw that was blinded and saw the data come in to adjudicate the clinical outcomes um, and the type of staff and baseline condition kind of thing. Um, and then Vance was involved in a in an oversight or a steering committee, if that is the right term for the trial, as, as big decisions had to be made, like do, how do we get more MRSA in this trial if we're not seeing enough in the early going or, you know, big, big uh, operational strategy decisions. Uh, but in this case, we did not run the, the day-to-day operations of, of enrollment in this trial. That's a short answer. I think one of the, we'll get to this later when we look at the study population, but one of the critiques we've heard of this trial is that it does enroll a predominantly white population, mostly in Eastern Europe. So can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, there were a few patients in the United States, but not many, um, just, a, just a handful. I think there's a couple answers to that. One is that from the standpoint of doing a staph aureus trial where you're talking about giving multiple weeks of intravenous antibiotics in the hospital. So this was not a, a trial that had an OPAT or an outpatient you know, IV antibiotic piece to it. That's, that's hard to do in the U.S. to have patients hospitalized for multiple weeks getting an IV therapy. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably one reason. I'm sure uh, cost is another reason, um, yeah, and ultimately, you're right. I, you know, it's a it, it needs to be acknowledged that this trial mostly enrolled in Eastern Europe. Uh, as a result, the those who enrolled were mostly white. It's not reflective of the global epidemiology of Staph aureus bacteremia in that way. Yeah, I think the, those were the I think the OPAT and probably cost were the main main impediments to enrolling in the United States. I don't know, Vance, if you think there were others. Yeah, I think it's just getting patients in study. And, and a large part of this, these sort of factors that occur reflect the practice of medical care in the particular regions. A great example of how this plays out elsewhere is complicated UTI trials. So 90 plus percent, probably 95 percent of complicated UTI trials are, ex- are enrolled in Eastern Europe for many of the same reasons that Tom just alluded to. Now, that's gotten a little more challenging in the last couple of years, but it it has to do with where the patients are getting enrolled, how long they're going to be getting the products they are. You could enroll staff. In fact, I would argue that the United States may be one of the few places where you can reliably enroll MRSA in a robust manner. We enrolled some in Eradicate until it was declared, until it was terminated for futility. Tom had a little better luck with his DOTS trial, thank goodness, and uh, enrolled a lot of MRSA. But but from the perspective of a sponsor where you're burning somewhere on the order of, you know, in excess of maybe a million dollars a day on average to get a trial done, to get an answer, you want patients enrolled in study and you want quality data. And so that, that led to the, the issue that you raised. Yeah, I think it's fascinating and something I, I just learned from you guys in that it, it, one of the predominant reasons it was hard to enroll in the United States is because patients in this trial had to be in the hospital for the whole time. One of our members of the audience just asked us, why was an OPAT trial not done? Why did the patients have to be in the hospital the whole time? Is it because OPAT isn't something that's necessarily a recognized service globally, 
or is it just because of the nature of the fact that this was a double blind, double dummy study and logistically to give all of those infusions outpatient, it's just not happening. I, I'm thinking the latter. You're absolutely right. And then, and it's also a separate process to prove drug stability. And there's a, there's more stuff you have to go through to, to get the OPAT piece there. And I'm, I think from the company perspective, they need an antibiotic that is safe and effective before they can go down that whole route. Um, and so that just in the order of operations here, it, um, it made more sense to do this in hospitalized patients. It does raise yeah. the issue though, doesn't it, of the later external generalizability, like this trial is conducted on inpatients, whereas we'd like to use it in outpatients. So how do you make that transition and, and does it actually work in that way? So that's perhaps something we'll, we'll touch on later as well. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the company, because it's a great, we need companies to invest in antibiotic research, right? And we need companies to want to bring drugs to market. So in any kind of trial like this, looking at a brand new drug, there's going to be company involvement. I think that's something that's important because often we look at these trials and we may critique, oh, the, the sponsor had some role in the study. But I think it, we need to be honest with ourselves that you can't bring a new drug to market without someone sponsoring it. And so what we're showing on the slide here now is, is the role of Basilea Pharmaceutica International in, the, in this trial. And so a couple things here. I think Steve has a, a question about medical writers um, that we'll come back to. But before we get there, I want to talk about the data collection, analysis, and interpretation, right? So it says in this study that members of the company were involved in data collection, analysis, and interpretation. And, and like I was saying, as a, a general clinician reading this paper, I can be real quick to Monday morning quarterback, right? And be like, oh man, that must be terrible if the company looked at the data. But my sense is that's not true. My sense is that there's actually quite a bit of integrity here and that Tom, you pretty much absolutely wrote every word of this paper. So can you comment a little bit about how studies are involved with data management and should we immediately write this off in that setting or understand why they're involved? Yeah, I mean, you're, so you're absolutely right. That this is a company-sponsored trial and so that, that deserves a close look or you know, skepticism or, or thoughtfulness about it. And you're right, Advance has already referenced the trial that we just completed with Dalbavancin for completion of therapy for staph bacteremia. It's a great pragmatic trial. It only can exist because somebody developed Dalbavancin and it exists, right? You know, Steve can only, you can only study erdipenem combination therapy for MSSA because somebody developed erdipenem. So that, yeah, it's a different beast. Someone has to bring these um, new antibiotics to, to market or to FDA or to regulatory approval. As it relates, so what about uh, the medical writer piece? You're right, I, I try not to be too defensive about this. I wrote this paper, uh, the first draft of it, and advance, um, advance you know, we, 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 we spent a lot of time going back and forth on drafts of this thing, right? There was a medical writer paid by sponsor. There, uh, that, that person who's great, their primary um, assistance for us was because like, I, I don't, I don't mean to be poor me, but it's like, it's hard. It's, it's a process to submit to a journal like New England Journal and have all the conflict of interest forms and all the correct forms and all the like, I's dotted and T's crossed and tables formatted correctly. And that's what this person did. Yeah, and they were paid by sponsor. But as far as writing the intellectual content of how we reported these results, that came from, uh, I think me and Vance primarily. And then from uh, from the standpoint of what was the, how did it actually work um, with the data during the trial? Again, I was, I chaired the adjudication committee. So we received uh, standardized patient profiles um, from the CRO, the, the research organization. Um, so we had the clinical data, yeah, we were blinded to treatment assignment yeah, as to who got what. And then along with a, a group of adjudicators, there were six of us in total over the life of the trial yeah, from around the US. Um, you know, we looked at these things in blinded fashion and established what was this patient's baseline condition? Was this a skin infection? Was this pneumonia? Was this, what was the condition? 
Uh, and then what were their clinical outcomes? Things like clinical success, relapse, uh, if uh, in the case of mortality, was it attributable to staph aureus bacteremia? So we adjudicated the clinical endpoints that was independent of sponsor, certainly was not at those meetings and had no right of refusal or no impact on the decisions we made for the clinical endpoints. Um, and then at the end of the trial, they received the data the same as we did. We, were, we all got the unblinded results uh, around the same time, and then um, they were involved um, in writing the paper as well, as, as outlined here. So I, I really like to hear that right, Aaron, because so many times, well, at least the impression is that the first author is a figurehead for the company. And it, I think it's important to hear from Tom that wasn't the case here that the intellectual property and input really did come from Tom and Vance and the, the academic scientific leads. The, the next um, slide we've got here is about the inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, who was eligible for this study. So this was adults hospitalized with staphylococcus bacteremia um, with at least one positive blood culture, uh, clinical evidence of complicated bacteremia. And we'll touch on this as we see the results as well, but I think it's stated as complicated bacteremia, but when we go through what qualifies as complicated bacteremia. It includes the standard things like persistent bacteremia more than three days despite being on appropriate antibiotics, association with long-term hemodialysis, but also staph bacteremia arising from soft tissue infection, which ended up being quite a large component of the trial. And you could, I think, make a strong argument that perhaps some of these patients weren't really complicated. Typically complicated bacteremia we would treat for at least four weeks, 28 days, and we will see that quite a few patients, in fact, the majority of patients receive less treatment than that. So one could argue that perhaps it's a, the patient population in the end ended up being less complicated than is first made out to be. The exclusion criteria uh, were fairly standard and I think very reasonable. So an unremovable endovascular prosthetic material, pneumonia, particularly with adaptomycin and, and poor penetration into the lungs, receipt of potentially effective antibiotics, and I think that those are the main things, and there's further inclusion, exclusion details in the protocol if you want to go to those. I think we wanted to ask a question here as well, Aaron, about endocarditis. And one of the exclusions was left-sided endocarditis. So I think the audience will be really interested in understanding why that was chosen as an exclusion and whether Tom or perhaps even Vance might speak to that. Yeah, this is one. Vance, I'm going to punt this one to you. This was informed by your experience with daptomycin for sure, right? And and what it was like to have left-sided endocarditis in that trial. Yeah, this is one of many things I've learned from you, but around the decision about uh, left-sided endocarditis, yes or no, in a trial like this. Yeah, it's hard. And I can tell you that I've argued, well, I, I'm not sure if successfully is the right word, but I have argued to include left-sided endocarditis in two different protocols and to the to the sorrow of both of them. The first one was, of course, the, was DAPTO, you know, we included left-side endocarditis. In fact, actually, it was included after an, an amendment. The bottom line with the left-side endocarditis is it's just, there's so much going on that's independent of what drug is being administered. So it, with in terms of DAPTO, there are 18 patients in, in the, that, uh, with left-side endocarditis that were ultimately enrolled in that trial. The FDA actually, it was a, a tiered approach whereby they just included right-sided endocarditis for the first several years, saw the preliminary data, the FDA, and then asked the sponsor to, in, to expand the enrollment to, to left-sided endocarditis. As a matter of fact, the enrollment extended for another an additional year to try to get a sufficient number of subjects into the trial. 
we were unable to do so and ultimately the fda let us stop and uh so if you actually look at it the the, the, the trial was actually overpowered for the 20 percent margin um the second time it was included was in the exhibit case phase two trial which did demonstrate a difference some potential benefit in the mrsa group but it was a higher mortality signal very high mortality signal in the left-sided population it's a tough group to enroll they've got surgery they've got additional infections tom and i are trying our best right now to convince a an entity to undertake such a trial in left-sided staph aureus endocarditis so i'm not giving up but I lost this argument on this one out there. Uh, sounds like why we do UTI trials, right? It's a complex disease state. <laughs> it's very easy to get a drug approved for UTI, unless you're a tetracycline, I guess, and then we just keep, keep failing. Um, but okay, related to that, as we talk about design, so that's fascinating as to why the decision was made to exclude left-sided endocarditis. The other thing that Steve touched on, I'd like to hear a little bit more about is how your median duration of therapy was 21 days. And so some could say, well, were these really truly complicated? They all had bacteremia, but like how complicated was it? And, and that actually, if you tease into it, it's because it breaks down the whole study into this cohort one, which was up to four weeks of therapy, and then a cohort two, which was up to eight weeks of therapy. Can you explain to us why the FDA structured the trial this way? And that's kind of why you ended up with so much skin and soft tissue, right? Because like who treats? I've never treated staph aureus bacteremia for 21 days. It falls in this weird realm. So clinically, I don't know that I've ever seen staph bacteremia three weeks. So that stood out to me. Can you please explain these cohorts? Yeah, definitely. It it arose from this, you know, what you've got on the screen here, for those that can see the slide, this request that at least 80 patients be enrolled who had a treatment duration of 21 to 28 days. The reason for this that was given by FDA was there was concern about whether there was excess seizure risk with longer courses of septaviprol. It had been studied in shorter courses for pneumonia and skin, and they wanted to see data in a cohort enrolled for 21 to 28 days. I don't actually know where that concern came from. To my reading, there's not an excess seizure risk in the previous septaviprol trials, but they, maybe they have different data, or I'm sure they have access to things I don't. Um, but this was the request, was to do at least the first 80 patients. And it wasn't just 80 patients, it was 80 patients who actually got that treatment duration. So ultimately, about half the trial was enrolled in cohort one. And of course, you were continuing to enroll even as that, that first bit was uh, under that protocol as the first bit was analyzed. So it's kind of hard, as you as you point out, Aaron, it's hard to identify what is a group of patients with staph aureus bacteremia that I treat for 21 to 28 days. I mean, there's right. a group of 28-day folks. And ultimately, we made the argument that it was reasonable to treat soft tissue infections for 21 days. You may want to treat those for two weeks because they're, you think maybe these aren't complicated and 14 days for culture clearance is adequate. We thought it was, we were, it was fair to say that 21 days was at least a reasonable duration to treat these folks for. That enabled this initial cohort to get enrolled. It is the reason that about, you know, that more than half the patients in the trial got 21 days of therapy. And I will say, and this is sort of looking ahead to the results, when you actually look at the results by type of baseline infection, the patients that had these soft tissue infections did not have better outcomes than the patients who had other forms, you know, osteomyelitis or deep-seated infections. So I think in the end, maybe we didn't know that up front, but in the end, these patients were as complicated as anyone else with staph or bacteremia, at least when you look at what their clinical outcomes were in this trial. The soft tissue infections enrolled were considerably different than, you know, the sort of the ABSSSI definitions with neck fash and, you know, deep tissue abscesses, et cetera. But the point is valid. 
Yeah, and I was going to say, I think Steve will echo this sentiment too, doing a lot of research in the staff board is based on that. We're all taught this in residency and fellowship, like staff is meant to be respected. And just because it's a skin and soft tissue infection doesn't mean it's serious to your point that the outcomes are similar. It's like, well, there, so there have been some trials in the staff board space in the last decade or so, which is awesome. Note, this is only the first RCT since 2006, looking at a new drug, but we've had several trials. We mentioned DOT, Sabato came out, was an ecfid like breaker either last year or the year prior. And I remember when they announced that trial, we were like, yeah, you can use orals for uncomplicated staph. We also learned there's almost no uncomplicated staph bacteremia. I think they screened 5,000 patients to find 200 in that study. So a, a rare occurrence when you can truly do two weeks and, and uncomplicated therapy, but good to know if that patient comes up. So let's talk about the interventions though, because we talked about septibipril. It's interesting that comment that the FDA wanted to look at longer durations because of the potential seizure risk. From my pharmacist hat, I don't necessarily know why ceftibipril would be more prone to cause seizures than any other beta-lactam other than maybe save high-dose imipenem. So that was interesting to me. I don't know where they got that either, where that came from. I haven't seen anything and like up to like molecule development of ceftibipril that would suggest that, but at least now we know that those safety data exist. So what did patients in this study get? So again, double blind, double dummy. So if you weren't getting active drug, you were getting saline, placebo infusion. So a lot of infusions, which is why these patients were kept in the hospital. If you were enrolled to the ceftibipril arm, you got ceftibipril 500 milligrams every six hours for the first eight days over a two hour infusion. I don't know about y'all, but my nurses would absolutely meet me. So I do hope the company is looking at this as a continuous infusion stability because this will be challenging to administer. And then that drops to 500 to eight, two hour infusion for day nine and onward. In the daptomycin arm, they got daptomycin six mix per kg per day over a half hour infusion. And then you could go up to 10 mix per kg if your institutional protocol allowed that. But the study dose was six mix per kg. And then the corresponding placebos. And then in the DAPTO arm, you could also get a Shrinam for gram negative coverage. Ceftibipril, of course, has some gram negative coverage in and of itself. So a lot to unpack here. Let me pause as the pharmacist gets really excited about this slide. Um, but someone in the chat actually already asked this question. So one of our audience members just posed the question of, what was the rationale for this dosing? Why this aggressive kind of load and then backing off? So it seems like ceftibipril dosing was pretty like front loaded and, and very dose optimized. But then, and you guys, you knew it was coming. Vance is going to like roll his eyes because he's like, I've answered this question a hundred times. Why was DAPTO given at six mix per kg, which seems not dose optimized? So it seems like ceftibipril were doing the most, DAPTO maybe doing the least. Can you guys explain where the doses came from the FDA standpoint? I'll take the septo one in advance if you want to take the DAPTO or I can do both or however you want to do it. But so from a septibipril standpoint, I think the company knew from surveillance data that already existed that MICs for septibipril MICs for MRSA were likely to be a little bit higher. And I think they just opted for a hit it hard up front, make sure that you've you know, achieved an adequate um, dose for the range of MICs that you're likely to encounter in the trial. So that was the rationale for the sort of hit it hard Q6 hour dosing up front for ceftibiprol. Take the DAPTO, Vance. Sure, it's easy. The FDA said so. Uh, I mean, that's the FDA indication. That's the dose that's instructed. We pushed back pretty hard. We pointed out that in the various guidelines that are out there that it allows higher doses. I personally feel like we probably got the dose a little bit, you know, a little bit low in the original trial. But keep in mind, it was originally four milligrams per kilogram when, for the skin indication. 
So, uh, you know, the best that you're going to, we're going to be able to do for a registrational trial that, in, that involves DAPTO is six milligrams with local, with dose adjustment as per local standard of care. That is what we're going to get. And this was no exception to that, to that statement. So. Yeah, that's helpful background. I think that is the FDA approved dose. And so I think from the beta-lactam standpoint, we love to see dose optimization, but yes, that is a complex dosing strategy. So I do hope the company is evaluating prolonged infusions and continuous infusions. I think clinically we would increase our DAPTO doses too, but it would be nice to see that done. And then talking, so again, this was an all staph aureus trial. So from MRSA, really cool. Okay, two MRSA drugs. Um, but Steve, I think you had really some awesome points around MSSA if you want to bring those up. Yeah, so so I mean, whenever I look at a trial and you look at the control arm, I always ask myself, is this what I would do? Is this the standard of care or equivalence? And for MSSA, I don't usually use daptomycin. I would use you know, flucloxacillin or nafcillin or cefazolin because we we know that beta-lactams are highly effective against MSSA. And so you could argue that this isn't what we would normally do. And perhaps the, the control arm potentially is a bit inferior to what we, we do in standard practice. And so you're already disadvantaging just by the design, um, the, the control arm. So I'd be really interested to hear from Tom and Vance as to why you chose to use daptomycin for MSSA when that's not what we would typically do. Yeah, I think there are two two answers to this, and I appreciate you bringing this up. It absolutely needs to be discussed because we're clinicians like you are. I don't use daptomycin as my first line MSSA drug in routine clinical practice either. There are two reasons here. One is that you can, right? So the the this gets back to Vance's comment about the the audience here is the FDA in this case, primary audience, and and daptomycin is an FDA approved drug for staphylococcus both MSSA and MRSA, and so it is an acceptable standard of care comparator when you're showing that a new drug is safe and efficacious. That's sort of dodging the question a little bit. The second thing that using daptomycin did is it really unlocked the ability or the option to have a blind, double-blind trial, right? So the initial daptomycin trial was open-label. Dapto was compared to VANC or for MRSA or beta-lactam for MSSA, each in combination with genomycin, but you could have multiple comparators depending on susceptibility in open-label fashion. Aaron has already spoken about how many infusions there already are in this trial. And yeah, you would not have a double-blind trial with multiple different comparators, um, nor would it be practical in places in, in enrolling countries that didn't necessarily have rapid diagnostics and might not know if it's MRSA or MSSA at the time of enrollment. So I think fundamentally in this trial design, the choice was between open-label septibiprol against a range of comparators or a double-blind trial against daptomycin. And there are pluses and minuses to both those designs. I, I think the company made the right choice on this. Yeah, I think it's a stronger trial for having the blinded design. And that especially, it may not be immediately obvious, but the other thing that unlocks for this trial is that you can do, when you're evaluating a patient with staphylococcus you're trying to get that CAT scan and get that echo and sort of get figure out where is the, where is the staph that's showing up in their bloodstream, where is it coming from? And if you don't have all that information at the time of randomization, you still, as long as you're blinded, you can have this post-randomization window where you say, okay, the, the test that we do in the next few days, the adjudication committee can look at that and say, what was the baseline condition? Was this, um, you know, vegetation on the right, you know, on the tricuspid valve present at baseline two days ago when they were enrolled, or was this a post-randomization failure? But you can't really do that as well in an open-label trial because you may be influenced by what testing is done or post-randomization events, knowing 
what arm they're in. So again, that's a lot of words, but I think having the option of a blinded trial with a single comparator is a strong design here, even acknowledging you're totally right that we don't use, tend to use daptomycin for MSSA. The last thing I'll say is that daptomycin worked for MSSA in the DAPTO trial. I absolutely agree. I think the blinding is one of the, the great strengths of this study, and it just removes all that post-randomization bias in how we manage and also in the judging of outcomes. So I actually I very much applaud the level of blinding that's occurred in, in this study. It wouldn't have been easy. We did have a question from the audience about why was daptomycin chosen as the control comparator and not vancomycin? Sure, it's tough to blind with AC or trough monitoring and all of that. I mean, vancomycin is even harder than DAPTO, right? That was going to be my sense is that vanco would be a logistical nightmare in terms of blinding and having to do any kind of monitoring. So moving on then to the outcomes, Steve, do you want to lead us through this part of the discussion? Yeah, um, so the, the outcomes that we were uh, looking at here, the primary efficacy outcome was overall treatment success at 70 days after randomization. And that was a, a, defined by a number of things as survival, uh, symptom improvement, clearance of the staphylococcus from the bloodstream, and the absence of new staphylococcus bacteremia or related complications, and no use of other potentially effective antibiotics. So I, I think a, a pretty robust, reasonably standard kind of definition, a little bit vague in some ways in how it's described here, but if you go to the protocol and the appendix, it, there's a you know full page that outlines exactly the definitions for each of those things. So I thought that was helpful if you want to go to the appendix. And then there's secondary efficacy outcomes, including death from any cause, microbiologic eradication, uh, overall treatment success in the PER protocol, as opposed to the intention to treat um, population uh, and a number of other things as well. So I don't think there's anything particularly controversial about these um, outcomes, Erin. No, they seem reasonable to me. Did you guys have any heated discussions on picking outcomes or were those mostly dictated by regulatory bodies as well. There was one point that may be worth raising, and that is when you assess the outcome. So that was an interesting change from DAPTO to this one. So the DAPTO trial essentially established test of cure starting from the last day of antibiotics. So if you, you know, your last day that you got antibiotics, you, you counted 42 days out from there. The current trial, as you, as you pointed out, was 70 days from time of randomization. So the argument being that it, that it was a more generalizable or more appropriate comparison if you can establish your pre-specify your time of, in, of assessment from a fixed point in the evaluation, that, that being the randomization point. So that's one big difference between the two trials. I'll stop there. Awesome. Thanks for that background. But then I think moving into the statistical analysis, we didn't want to get in, into this in too much detail in the interest of time. The, the long story short is the stats here were very sound and pretty straightforward. Um, but we did talk at the beginning about setting that non-inferiority margin at 15%. Uh, and so did you guys just want to go into that a little bit more about you know how that was calculated? I think we have some, if I remember correctly, like setting this sample size calculation and, and looking at this non-inferiority margin, like how we got there and justified the 15%. Yeah, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, it was clear that the FDA was interested in this being tighter than the 20% margin, which was used for daptomycin. In part, you end up making a comparison to historical data in untreated mortality and staphylococcus bacteremia. Of course, we don't have any untreated patients now. You have to go back to the pre-penicillin era and the like Skinner et al. data from 
yeah, the, the 1940s or 1930s, where almost everyone with staph aureus bacteremia unfortunately died of the disease, to understand what the untreated mortality is. And then we know with contemporary data what we expect uh, mortality to look like. And then you ultimately make a clinical argument that it's reasonable to have a antibiotic that's within X percent of what we would expect uh, the standard of care to provide. So, yeah, I don't know. I, the, ultimately, you make a lot of, we make we made a fair number of justifications, which were considered acceptable to the FDA. And and right. I think, you know, kudos to, to Tom and Vance. It's, it's as good a justification as I've seen for a, a non-inferiority margin. So it's worth going again to the protocol if you're interested and reading there's like about three pages right in the protocol to justify that that decision. Yeah, that was pretty good actually. Thank you for saying that, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pretty how <laughs> <laughs> we did that actually. I was gonna say, Steve, how much of that informed decisions made around SNAP? I don't think we, we went to such great efforts actually, Aaron, for SNAP. We, it's a whole new, another conversation, but we kind of were able to tune some of the margins based on pre-trial simulations. We, we can discuss that some other time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about the patients in this trial and what happened to them, right? Let's get to the punchline. So 390 patients were ultimately included in the attention to treat population. There's 192 randomized to receive ceftazoprel, 198 randomized to receive daptomycin. After you look at people who never received the drug or people um, dropouts, things like that, we ended up with 189 patients in the modified intention to treat population in the ceftavipril arm and 198 patients in the daptomycin arm. So looking at baseline characteristics, they're pretty standard of what you'd expect of patients that have staph aureus bacteremia. We talked earlier about the geographic enrollment. Almost all of these patients were enrolled in Europe. And when you dig into the supplement, you look at really enrolled in Eastern Europe. Any comments here, guys, about anything with these baseline characteristics? I think moving on to the next slide, for those who can see the slides, when we look at the risk factors for staph aureus bacteremia or having infected endocarditis, and then what category of complicated staph aureus bacteremia they fall into, that's where we see these skin and soft tissue infections, but the authors do take the time to point out, and we really, really appreciate it, that in the skin and soft tissue infection category, there were 70 patients, and they had quite a wide range of infections. So it's not your bread and butter easy skin and soft tissue infections. They were indeed quite complicated, and like we talked about earlier, their outcomes were similar to other patients. The one thing that does stand out when we look at these baseline characteristics is the relatively low rate of MRSA, so about 24%, give or take, looking at the different groups. So Vance, Tom, any comments on why this is the case and what we can read from the fact that it was about a quarter of the patients that had MRSA? Yeah, I'd love for Vance to talk about the sort of mid-trial decision but that was had to be made, but ultimately you're enrolling in countries where you're hoping to get a good representation of MRSA. In the event, MRSA rates were a little bit lower as the trial was accruing patients than anybody wanted or was expected. And so, it's a really hard decision to, you know, to cap enrollment at sites that are mostly enrolling in MSSA or stop enrolling in, in countries that are mostly MSSA and prioritize enrollment for sites that have more MRSA because it's an expensive beast and every day you're keeping this trial open. And if you're intentionally slowing it down in order to try to change your baseline characteristics in some way, that's a really momentous decision. But um, that was done. I think that was done um, in order to try to enrich this trial for MRSA. Um, ultimately, we have a few more MRSA patients in this trial than were in the DAPTO trial. Um, but you're absolutely right that the as, as is here, it's, it's about a quarter of the patients ultimately were enrolled with MRSA. 
I don't have much to add to that. I think Tom's right. It's a hard decision. It's a judgment call. And, you know, as with many things, you're not totally sure that it's the right call, but it's probably the necessary call. And I think that one, one critical thing about clinical trials in general, but certainly registrational trials in particular, it's enrollment, enrollment, and then it's also enrollment. And if you don't do that, everything else collapses. I think all things considered, I'd probably favor do it, have to do, end up with the same decision, even though I probably would be similarly displeased about it. So I'll stop there. Yeah. The other thing, last thing I'd add is we would like this trial to have better racial and ethnic diversity, right? It would be great to have it have more MRSA. Yeah. It also was really important to get it done, which is what Vance is saying. And just as like a real world point about this is that the last patient was enrolled in Ukraine three weeks before war broke out there, right? And so you're at the mercy of just though maybe there's a new pandemic with a novel virus that totally reshapes your trial or something like a war in Ukraine. Um, and so you've got, you just got to get these trials done at some point. Um, and so that's what was done here. And I cannot say enough about our Ukrainian colleagues who in the midst of that, were still completing follow-up and data queries and giving input and doing all the things to see this trial to completion, but man, they're just hard, they're hard to do. And so this is, yeah, this is what we ended up with. I think that's a really great point. We actually had a pharmacist from Ukraine on the podcast a couple months ago talking about what the landscape is there now, the resistance they're seeing, but just how dedicated healthcare workers are in that space. And even things like, it's amazing what came out of the pandemic, right? Our ability to build adaptive platform trials, work with each other across the globe, even look at steroids for CAC, right? Cape Cod was enrolling and then they were like, just kidding, let's pivot to COVID studied steroids in COVID, said, hey, that might save lives. And then now, just now, we got those steroids and regular CAT data, right? And it's fascinating how those platforms can evolve. So I think it's amazing work that you guys do. Um, okay, so as we conclude here, let's talk about the punchline then. So I'll give, I guess I'll give the high level and then let Steve comment on some of the more interesting pieces here in that your non-inferiority margin was achieved. So it's to buy Pearl, non-inferior to daptomycin, but superiority was not. We're looking at an overall success of about 70%, give or take 69.8, 68.7 in each arm. You break down reasons for failure, which were quite similar, and death similar, but low, right? So a mortality rate of about 9%, which is a little lower than I think we think of with staph aureus bacteremia, but clinical trial patients, as we discussed, are not real world patients, right? You have to be able to get into the trial and they're maybe a little less complicated than other patients, but... Um, but which may explain that relatively lower mortality rate, but still equal amongst groups. Steve, what else stood out to you in these outcomes that we should discuss today? Not a lot else, Aaron. I think you've picked up on all the major points. I think it does reflect that it's a little less complicated than probably was initially anticipated. 9% versus, I think Tom quoted, 20, 25% mortality rate in the real world uh, for staph bacteremia. So I think that's something to keep in mind. And the overall treatment success, I think it was significantly higher than what was seen in the DAPTO trial, right, Vance? And that was partly how you presumably defined treatment success was slightly different in the two trials as well. I do want to spend some time on, on my favorite outcome, me being the pharmacist again. In looking at, I feel like the devil's always in the details. And I know we're talking about four patients here, but bear with me. I think the data on looking at resistance development was fascinating and how, so you had all isolates tested at their initial lab, but then all isolates were sent to a centralized lab where then genotypic background was done and we were able to see whether patients were truly reinfected with the same staph aureus, or whether patients had a relapse, meaning they had an infection with a strain of staph aureus and then had that same staph infect them later, or if they were reinfected with new staph by any means of that, how that could be introduced. 
And in the septobipral arm, all patients had reinfection, meaning new strains, but in daptomycin, there were some relapses. There was also some resistance development in daptomycin, but none in the septobipral. And again, I know we're talking extremely small numbers, but to me, this is intriguing. I think we've seen anecdotally and in the literature, this resistance development on DAPTO, which may be of concern, particularly as daptomycin has gone off patent. It's very cost-effective to use now. We already talked about it's less of a pain in the butt to monitor than vancomycin. So people want to use daptomycin for staph aureus bacteremia, especially now that it's an affordable option. But vanco's really held up for quite some time, and we're starting to see DAPTO resistance. So did you guys think this was interesting? What did you guys talk about when you saw these results? What does this mean moving forward? Yeah, we expected this. I mean, advanced. how does this compare to what you saw in the original DAPTO trial? Well, the absolute numbers are lower uh, This in this trial. I think there were five or seven, something like that, if memory serves. It was 5% of the overall of the DAPTO, no, excuse me, 11% of the DAPTO arm, 5% of the overall trial. So the numbers were lower. Maybe that's because the, the soft tissue source has been mentioned. And because as we all know on this podcast and, and journal club, you know, the place you really worry about DAPTO resistance is where you use where you need it the most. And that is these folks who are having ongoing infe persistent infection without source control, they're doing bad on VANC. And so that's the tricky bit. It was a little better than DAPTO, the DAPTO trial, but uh, still probably higher than we'd like. Something we'll, we'll continue to keep an eye on. Other things we keep an eye on are the other adverse events. So this is the very important part of any study. Looking at the study overall, adverse events, any adverse event and any serious adverse event were similar between arms. In the septobipral arm, we did see a lot more gastrointestinal disorders, mostly nausea, vomiting. We did have three seizures occur in the septobipral arm, but only one was attributable to the antibiotic. Two occurred in the daptomycin arm. None were attributable to the antibiotic. So that was, of course, a significant concern, but didn't seem to really pan out. And then we did see the, the, about 1% of eosinophilic pneumonia in DAPTO, which we know can happen. I actually had a patient today with DAPTO eosinophilic pneumonia. So this comes up in clinical practice. I think something people may forget can happen. Then they end up on all these other antibiotics for pneumonia and really it's a drug ADR. So it's just always interesting to see that play. Anything from the investigator standpoint with ADRs that are released pretty much what we anticipated? Yeah, I think you get the important stuff. This, this drug causes some nausea that's gonna that's known and is, uh, will be seen if it's used in clinical practice. Uh, the seizure thing didn't pan out as, a, as an event of something of concern even with these longer courses. So this was, I think, pretty much the expected or hoped for safety profile. Mm -hmm. All right, well, Steve, do you wanna bring us home here highlighting the strengths, maybe some discussions on limitations and then really the punchline is so what's next? Sure. So really, just very quickly, the overall strengths of the large trial, really well conducted, very robust, high quality, uh, and the, the blinding certainly adds a, an additional element of to that robustness. So I think, you know, congratulations to all the investigators and, and the company, the sponsor, uh, for conducting an excellent trial, of which the results I think we can be very confident in. And then if we move to the, the limitations, we, we've mentioned them before. I, I, I think, you know, is this the, the issues with the control, a beta-lactam uh, using daptomycin rather than a beta-lactam, the fact that the patient population was probably a little less complicated than we might decide to, to use this drug for, so largely skin and soft tissue infections, the fact that MRSA only made up 25%, and that's really, the, I think, the target 
that we might use this drug for and that daptomycin was, was in fact dosed at the lower end and when we looked at the data itself the vast majority of patients did get that six milligrams per kilogram despite having that range being allowed in the protocol. And then the questions arise of, well, what does this then mean? Um, what does this mean for, is this actually the drug that we need? Um, where does ceftabipril go from here? As we've mentioned, having you know the, the dosing regimen that was used, um, six, uh, the, the six hourly dosing for two hour infusions uh, for the first eight days. And even after that eight hourly, but at a, with a two hour infusion, that's not going to really fly in the real world, I don't think. So where do we go from here? Where does the FDA go from here with this as well? And finally, one of the issues was, what does this mean for ceftaroline? There's much less data for ceftaroline. I know that it is used. Does this mean we should shift from using ceftaroline to ceftabiprol? So they're, they're questions that perhaps you could have Tom and Vance's input into those. Vance, why don't you take the first one? Is this the drug that we need? I think it's a drug we need. And I think it probably could be a drug that uh, we need a lot. I think that for one thing, the, the continuous infusion, I think Aaron brought out 100% right. And I, my understanding is that those data have been generated and are encouraging. So I suspect that would be reassuring, particularly in the US where it's most of the drug administration is in an outpatient basis anyway. So it's a continuous infusion daily, once daily type thing. So yeah, I think it is. I think it is a drug that we need. I think we. The, one of the questions is, where are we using ceftaroline today? It's primarily IV. It's primarily in hospital, you know. And I, I as sort of as an adjunct to DAPTO, what I would like to see the question I think about what does this mean for ceftaroline? Well, what you're going to end up with, it, to my view, I think the P and T committees are are largely going to have an answer to that one because you're going to have a drug that's got a Okay, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit biased here, but you've got with excellent data that Tom's trial that is that has provided data to, to the level of rigor of a, a registrational trial, and then you've got ceftaroline, where you've got a bunch of retrospective case reports and collections over the last 10 or 12 years. And by the way, I was I tried my best to get them to do the right trial back in the day with, with Sorexa and then with Forrest and whoever has got it now. I don't even know. And so, which one are you going to which one are you going to pick, or rather, which one is the PNT committee going to pick? I think I know the answer, at least as far as I'm concerned. Tom, what do you think, Bud? Yeah, I think that's right. We're not embarrassed for choice for effective drugs for MRSA bacteremia or Staph aureus bacteremia. The idea that we could have another one that has high quality data behind it is all for the good, right? Um, so I think that's point one. I, I agree. I think it's primarily going to get used for MRSA, right? It'd be hard to make an argument that you should use this over cefazolin or your anastaphylococcal beta-lactam for MSSA. So for MRSA, potentially as initial therapy in patients where vancomycin or daptomycin are problematic, I, I agree with Vance. I think it sh probably should take the market from ceftaroline as far in, in salvage or in combination therapy just because we have a good safety and efficacy database that we don't have for ceftaroline. Some of that will depend on cost, right? I don't know what this is going to cost if it gets approved. It's not approved yet. And that leads into the where does septabiprol go from here question. I think from a regulatory standpoint, the, the FDA accepted the new drug application in October. That put them on a six-month clock to make a decision. That date is actually public when, the, when that decision is expected. It's in the first week of April. So we should know in the next few weeks or the next couple of months if um, this drug is going to be approved in the U.S. or not. Um, 
And I think all of us can talk about, including Aaron and Steve, about what what else we need to do for staphylococcus It's a mix of registrational trials like this one, trying to get new antibiotics, and then pragmatic trials. We're doing trials with existing antibiotics to try to figure out the right strategies, not just with antibiotics, but with with diagnostic imaging and things like PET-CT and TEE. I mean, there's tons of different questions that the number of questions in staphylococcus sort of outstrip our ability to answer them. Yeah, and I, I would say I, I, you guys, Steve, so many people are doing such excellent work in this space to try to find answers. I think something I heard a couple of years ago really resonated with me and looking at Vanco as a standard of care and people comparing it and saying, if it's no better, why should we spend money? Why should we try novel immunotherapies and all the things you guys are looking at? And people are like, well, standard of care is pretty bad. <laughs> like in the real world, up to 25% of patients die. So perhaps we should be aiming for a better mortality rate and not just settling for that. That's like really stuck with me when I'm trying to look at things and is it worth it, so to speak, and, uh, and all these additive therapies. So that's really stood out. There was a question in the chat about MIC 50s and 90s of ceftabicrol for Ceph aureus compared to ceftaroline and what's the potency difference with that impact dosing? very pharmacist-centric question that I think is fascinating. I'll be honest, I don't know of direct comparator data, but I'm sure we'll be seeing it if this drug comes out. Our friends at JMI and other types of centralized labs usually do great work in helping us look at those things. The MICs of ceftabicrol to MRSA in this trial were between 0.5 and 2, which the UCAST breakpoint is indeed 2, and then they were lower for MSSA, so 0.12 to 1, and so a little bit more potent for MSSA, but you're talking a dilution. Not sure if that matters, but overall, everything was susceptible to ceftabicrol in this trial. So that's an important ending note, I think. And with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, with my awesome co-host, Dr. Steve Tong. Our featured speakers are Drs. Tom Holland and Vance Fowler. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Megan Klatt and Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Michael Cassius and peer-reviewed by Justin Jackson and Edwin Kaczynski. Our production team includes Ashley Shelby, Justin Moore, and Mary Hutton. The executive producer of Breakpoints is myself, Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.